And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm JJ Bull and Joe Devine is Skyping. And uh, today I am joined by the wonderful, he's back from holiday, it's Seb Stafford Bloor. Hello Seb. Hello JJ Bull, how are you? Good, you have bees now. I have bees, <laughs> well I have, I have lavender in my garden. How many bees, bees you, would you say you have? Yeah, uh, been about seven this morning. And I'm also joined by the one and only John, the Mac Daddy Mackenzie. Hello, Hello, John. Hello. Had a nice time in the office today? Yeah, it's been good. We've had a, a decent chat this morning, haven't we? About we fun did. things. We talked about all the football. And we're going to do even more of that right here, right now in this podcast. Talking about some of the international games. Ooh, weren't they good? I watched all of them. <laughs> talking about all the transfers. I didn't actually pay attention to those. I like the transfers. They're fun. Uh, Luis Campos is going to PSG. Pochettino has been fired into the sun. And there's some other bits that are written down on our plan. And if you like things written down on a plan that are about (laughs) football and are formed the words of football, subscribe to The Athletic. (laughs) It's really good. And if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, uh, you'll be able to get a free trial for 30 days. Oh, and you can read all sorts of amazing things that help us learn what we're going to talk about in this podcast. Like, for example, Seb, what's an article you'd liked recently? So I've been reading about the Derby County debacle. I think it yeah. officially qualifies as a debacle rather than just a saga now. And somehow, some way, Mike Ashley seems like a preferred bidder, which is a very strange alternate universe. But Elias is... Uh, coverage of it has been excellent and there's a couple of not just one article a series of three which uh which i'd recommend reading just to get up to speed uh, because the uh the football league are now involved which seems kind of ominous 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 <laughs> ominous even i've been on a holiday i need to return to work mode i'll allow it okay thank you but it's been great and it's full of detail and by no means is the story at end so i would recommend uh keeping in touch with his work on that Definitely. And Elias was in one of our TIFO IRL videos where we did the same thing. Oh, he was great in that video, wasn't he? He's a really nice guy and he's very, very good at journalism. So well done to you, Elias. (laughs) Well done to you, subscriber, for getting The Athletic, because now your life is enriched. It's genuinely good, though. Do you like it, John, since since now you've you've been in the door, you've had a couple of videos in TIFO IRL, they've done well? Yeah, it's been... It's been good fun. It's been nice feedback. But onwards and upwards, you're only as good as your last video, as they say, JJ. Yes. And so (laughs) let us proceed into open waters of football. What am I talking about today? Saying weird things. Anyway. You're being very ominous. (laughs) I'm going to leave you in the ominous arms and cold heart of John McKenzie and Seb Stafford Bloor. international football how much did you enjoy in England drawing with Italy Seb? Well I decided to do something else during the game so I mean I, I suppose I enjoyed it quite a lot um, but Nobody cares do they? It, no you know what the problem is is that uh, nobody cares everybody says they don't care and yet everybody draws definitive conclusions from it that seems quite contradictory <laughs> What are the things um, they've concluded? I have not seen this That Gareth Southgate must be fired into the sun should no longer be presiding over a gilded generation of England players like it's all very reactionary and it, it kind of it feels very incongruous because on one hand very clearly England are absolutely knackered and all of England's players are absolutely knackered and it is an advert for there being less football rather than more. At the same time, people seem to still have the energy to have very forceful opinions about uh, the state of the national team where it just feels like it's just let it wash over you, pick it up in a couple of months, it will be fine. I'm sure, I don't know, like it's, it's, it's a determination to be angry 
which I haven't enjoyed. And I, I kind of, I didn't really have the stomach for it on Saturday night. So I just, I, yeah, did something else. I mean, I do. About reunification of Germany. Very interesting. That is good. Um, mm. I do see where the criticisms of Southgate come from. As well, you know, I believe in the World Cups are going to draw maybe every game and it'll be a waste of one of the best generations of footballers they've had. Whether a different manager will get more out of them, I don't know. Do you care, John? Do you not think that international football should just be fun? More fun? Yeah. Yes. Do I, maybe the professionalisation of the domestic game has meant that everyone takes that sort of super tetchy approach into into the international game and like, why not just ball out? That's what I want to see. Yeah. Like, do, does anyone really care if England play fun football and lose to Italy in a in a Nations League game? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I don't even want to watch it. Like Scotland were absolutely garbage, for example, like terrible in all the games, this international break. Let's not really talk about it. If people are talking about Steve Clark needs to go, I don't know. It's weird I mean, though, isn't it? Because Clark was good for it. Well, he's playing defensive tactics against good teams. So those that 5-2-1-2 two, two works if you're trying to hit on the counter and block against Denmark. It doesn't work when you're playing against Ireland. Like one of the mm. worst Ireland teams they've had since I remember. It's all League One players. Then they absolutely pumped Scotland. Like they couldn't get close to them until they changed the shape later on and Scotland pushed up because they've got good players. It's just not knowing how good you actually are. But anyway, I think everyone else will agree that they don't really care. It's done now. Football's gone. What's way more interesting is all the transfers. So today, uh, we're filming this on a Monday, Erling Holland to Man City was announced, isn't it? Officially? Has that happened, Seb? It has officially happened as of about an hour ago, but it feels like a second Christmas day in the middle of January because it was announced. Everybody accepted it. Everybody responded and reacted to it a couple of weeks ago. And now because the Manchester City official Twitter account has confirmed it, we're kind of, people are kind of having to, you know, manufacture a half-hearted response to it again, which feels odd. Speaking of, kind of uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you watch the Bundesliga often because you live in Germany. I do. Yes, uh, I do. yes. Do you agree that he's going to adapt to the Premier League straight away and smash it? Uh, yes, yes, I do. Uh, because he has perfect attributes for the Premier League. He's perfectly built for it. He's going to a system which is going to suit his style of finishing, uh, his positioning traits, his movement in the box. Everything is set up perfectly for him to succeed. There's always a discussion now, particularly around Bundesliga players, and I think John's got an illustrated video coming out about this in a couple of weeks' time, um, about Bundesliga attacks and about how different players fare in the Premier League. And I, I don't necessarily agree with the term because I, I think it's a, it's a tax on entry into the Premier League rather than a tax on specific leagues away from it. And I think you could drop Erling Haaland in any league, and he's one of the very few players who you could apply this to. You could drop him in pretty much any league and expect him to form. Perhaps not quite as spectacularly as he did when he made his debut in the Bundesliga. That was extraordinary. But there's no reason why he shouldn't. There are no caveats, if that makes sense. Beyond maybe his physical conditioning, because he had a few muscular injuries during his last season in Dortmund. Also, whenever you have a big forward who has a lot of short, sharp turns in his repertoire, as per you know original Ronaldo, you always have a little bit of a fear about stress on joints and those kind of things. But other than that, like, can you can anybody really make an argument why he won't do well? I, I'm, no. I'm very happy to listen to it, but I haven't heard it yet. We're not going to. Um, okay. Speaking of big, powerful strikers who are soon to be in the Premier League, Darwin Nunes, it's very likely is going to be confirmed or something like that very soon. I don't think it's been confirmed just yet as we record. Darwin Nunes to Liverpool, which is interesting for a number of reasons not least of which the transfer business that they're doing is kind of not what they've... Or it's just sort of along with what they've done before, isn't it? Buying Alisson, buying Van Dijk for lots of money. And the sale of Manny kind of helps if they eventually sell him and Minamino will be going likely as well, will kind of fund it. But John, what do you think of Darwin Nunes? Yeah, I've only just done my due diligence on Darwin Nunes. Uh, I kind of figured that I would do it at some point because it seemed inevitable he was coming to, to the Premier League. So I spent a, a chunk of yesterday having a watch and I quite enjoyed it, to be honest. He's a fun player. Um, the big questions are going to be, again, what we were talking about there, scalability between leagues. Uh, because th there are, as Seb says, there is a sort of entry tax to the Premier League and it's no guarantee that if you're playing well in one league that you'll play well in another. So the big questions with, with Nunes are, are going to be, is he going to be able to take the sort of form that we've seen him put up in, in Portugal into, into the Premier he's League? He's in the Champions League, right? And he's been... He's decent there. Um, scored against Bayern Munich, I think. And scored against Liverpool as well. Scored Liverpool, of course, yeah. I'm trying to work out what kind of striker he is, and I can't work out quite how good... So not even the divide of the leagues, but what I see in him is a player who's not technically amazing. Like, his first touch, I think, lets him down an awful lot. 
Like his movement's quite good. It seems to be in the right place to finish regularly. He likes to pull out wide, which makes me think he'd be able to rotate quite well with the Liverpool forwards. But he's just, he's like a big unit and he's really fast and has momentum and power. And it's weird that Liverpool and Man City have both gone from not really having an outright nine in the last few seasons to suddenly buying one. So they're both developing at the same time to changing to that. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. I think when, when you think about Nunes, from what I saw, he's just a transitional god, right? He's super yeah. quick off the mark. Like he's fast, but he's also really good acceleration wise so there's that the the nerds like to talk about straight line speed which always makes me chuckle right the idea that there's something other than like straight line speed like you're not you're not going to go you're not going to worry about exactly yeah anyway he's got good straight line speed i'm told but yeah he's his movement as well as you've mentioned is elite really good movement i think and we were talking a little bit before about how i find it quite reminiscent of of maybe strikers from earlier iterations of, of the Premier League. It feels like he likes to sit on the shoulder of the last man. He likes to make runs in between the two centre-backs. He likes to make seam runs in between a centre-back and a full-back. And his reading of the game, I think, is, is really good. But, you know, he's a transitional god, but how much transitional football are Liverpool going to be playing this season, I suppose, is the question. And what do you do when you have Nunes as your striker and you're playing in those games where you are expected to break down a low block? I think that's where the questions are, because as you yeah. said, like the, 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 the technique is, is not quite so honed as you might want for that sort of thing. Well, I wonder, Seb, whether it's a sign that Klopp's going to try and involve the way Liverpool are playing. You don't want to stand still, right? Or you go backwards. So maybe he'll change the way they play. And he strikes me as the kind of player who would then allow them to be a bit more aggressive in their in a high press and be more relentless, like not t- take up a couple of notches. But then they got to take into account that the World Cup is going to make the fixtures really close together, which is going to make, you can't go full like high octane, 100%, every, like twice a week, three times a week, you've got all that fixtures before the World Cup breaks. And I'm basing this on having played football manager enough with the, <laughs> the Qatar World Cup in the middle of it. And I know how like, difficult it is to get the rest days in between. But he would suit that system, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the interesting things about this is uh, what composition Liverpool are left with as a result of it. So obviously we expect Manny to go. Firmino is becoming a little bit more of a peripheral player. Mm. Um, Mohamed Salah's situation is still a little bit unclear. Um, So you add in players like Jota, add in Luis Diaz, and I'm intrigued by where Darwin fits in there. But like you've talked about the World Cup and you've talked about kind of succession planning and these are areas where Liverpool last season with the, um, the the pattern of their season was very much that you'd have a couple of players, particularly in that forward line, who had really, really excellent sort of six to 12 week periods. Then not drop off in the sense of, you know, reverting to becoming like four out of 10 performances, but they would be eight, nine out of 10, drop back to a seven and a half. So you had Mane's hot spell, you had Salah playing at probably yeah. the best um, level of his entire career. And that kind of fits around your World Cup issue in that you can depend on these very, very good players who you know, provide different things to the forward line, but a lot of the same things. So, for instance, while you wouldn't say that Luis Diaz is the goal scorer that Darwin is, there are kind of similarities between where they're on the pitch they like to play, between how much they kind of do with each touch. So Darwin's feet are quite quick, seemingly. I think that's fair. I don't pretend to watch a lot of Portuguese football, but I watch them in the Champions League. And he does a lot with each touch. So if he cuts inside, then he's he's forcing defenders to make a lot of reactive kind of adjustments to him. He forces yeah. his way past people. Yeah, I feel like that's yeah, and I feel like that's probably the way in which I'd sum up Diaz, at least in this kind of the first few months in English football. But then what Liverpool got really good at is they buy a player before they absolutely need it, or him. Yeah, or it that would be weird. And they also um, sell exactly the right time. So this is why I think the money exactly even yeah. is a great move, right? So. It, what you're saying earlier about where he fits in, I think it's I think it's actually pretty clear. Like Nunes goes in as a nine because Manny's been doing that, right? So right in the middle. Then they've got Diaz can play on the left. That's his spot now, I think. And the right's obviously Salah. Then you've got Jota can flip between either of them and you can change the way you want to play with that. They've also got Harvey Elliott can play off the right. They've done that a few times. Carvalho they just brought in. I think he could play along the front line as well. It's another option they've got. You know, it's interesting, JJ. It's like, I, I wonder whether... So I think Darwin Nunes is about six foot two, six foot two, six, six, two and a half, something like that. Now, it's interesting if you factor in his habit of playing off the left, like in those two games against Liverpool, for instance, particularly at Anfield, like a lot of the damage he did was off that left hand side cutting in. Yeah. Now, if you put a six foot two player in that left of the kind of three position and you line him up with potentially a fullback defending the back post and on the other side of the pitch you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold that's really interesting that's a I don't know whether that will develop into something it's kind of like two plus two football but 
it's a facet that you could develop and someone like Klopp presumably will look to exploit. But I, I know there's a sort of a tendency to kind of to sign slightly taller fullbacks for that added security also you know but so that they can play on the right side of a back three sometimes but if you had it if you put Nunez on the left hand side and played him against Brighton and Tarek Lamptey who's about I don't know five foot five I think that's a problem and that's a very interesting way of kind of buying a player and then moving him around to kind of exploit a defensive weakness somewhere and that's I'm interested to see it. John on money leaving so the if he does go, it looks very likely he would. So the the fee for Nunes is a lot of a lot of coins, but it's kind of offset with the sales of those players. Is it the right time to sell Mane? Is he at his peak and now he'll keep going? So the way I see it is that they've got probably his best years out of him. They'll get a couple, but if you can offer a player like that, that's good. Maybe it has to be a four year deal minimum because of how valuable he's been. His agent could argue that, which would be on huge wages. Manny's obviously a very clever player, uh, but a lot of what makes him good is like his explosive pace, like his aggressive pressing, uh, and the way you can run in behind people, which might, you know yourself as you get older, you get slower, right? You do, yeah, I'm definitely slower than I was. But yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I feel as though Liverpool are going to be going through a, a rebuild, right? This is a rebuild. Or was it a recycle? Yeah, mate, I don't know, what, what do we call it? Because I, f- I feel as though, as, as Seth was saying before, we're not sure what's gonna happen with Salah, you don't really, no one really sort of stands out as, as being the, the Salah replacement. Who's going to be the backup? And they've obviously played Salah just an incredible amount over the time period they've had him. It feels to me that, you know, if, if one of these signings doesn't work out and, and, and you know, if Nunes doesn't work out, they're going to be in a bit of trouble, right? So uh, I am kind of interested to see how that scalability works because it could very much be the case that we get another one of those seasons that we've seen recently where one of the top two you know, they, Liverpool had injuries. City obviously dropped away when Liverpool won the, the title as well. Whether or not we're going to see one of those seasons where Liverpool uh, are going to struggle a little bit because they are making a lot of changes at once. It's a big call. Yeah, no, I I, 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 I'm not making that a hot take. I'm just putting it out there as a... as a. We're going to cut that and make it a TikTok. <laughs> yeah, cool. But do, what do we do? We think that? Do we think that Liverpool could actually maybe have a bit of a wobble next season with, with a lot of change going on in their front line? I don't think so. I think it's such a smooth transition. Nunes makes absolute sense to me. It's a lot of money, but they can make it back with the sales they're going to make. I think the, the, the point with Manny is that some people will be going, but he's been amazing this season. Like he's so important. He won African Cup of Nations. He's taken Senegal to the World Cup. One of Liverpool's better players since he moved to being a nine. But you get him out now, you bring someone else in at that 25-year-old kind of age and you recycle the team. It's good to change your team every three or four years or something like that. So it's a natural cycle, that progression. It seems like Manny maybe wants to leave anyway. But Do you think- worry a little bit about like, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said and I also agree it's absolutely the right time to sell Sadio Mane. But then whenever you have a player that's achieved a lot in the game with a group and you sell him or you do or don't reward a new player, uh, an old player with a new contract, so the Salah situation, you worry a little bit about the squad dynamics just because you think, right, this guy's been treated this way and I want this. And it, it's, it plays into that, even if it makes perfect sense from a football perspective, you think, how are the personalities going to adapt to change? Because I feel like Klopp was one of his strong suits. I would think. Like yeah, management. I, I think yeah, man management yeah. is probably one of his better parts. The squad building. Well, um, we did have that time at Dortmund where it hit the pan, didn't he? And it sort of. Yeah, but that was that was one of those examples where the example that proves the rule or something with XG. Like they were so, yeah. <laughs> they were shooting so far under what they should have been. It made no sense. And then things you can't measure, like confidence and belief in the system, and you seem a bit vulnerable to opposition, so they have a bit more belief in themselves. Could that not happen the same way? Oh, with, it would happen to anyone. It could happen to Man City. Nunes coming in and playing well, but not getting the goal <laughs> returns. You could you could have the same sort of situation. But then if it doesn't, doesn't work, he's not working in training, he's not ready, he'd put Jota in. I mean, Klopp's not feared to... Not feared. It's an Aberdonian word. Uh, Klopp's not scared to. <laughs> don't, be, people... don't be embarrassed. You say those Aberdonians. <laughs> you have to talk in RP to be a proper <laughs> newsman. Uh, you have to get. Um, what as a hell? That doesn't matter. Ryan Gravenberg uh, is a good player that many of you will know from playing Football Manager or from being a keen football fan who watches the Eredivisie and Champions League. Bit of a wonder kid. Has it been confirmed he's going to Bayern Munich? Seb, what do you think of this? Yes, lad? it has. Yes, it has. Yeah, he's off. He has signed his contract over the weekend. He is Bayern Munich player. Seb, please tell me who Ryan Gravenberg is and whether it's a good deal for Bayern Munich. 
Okay, think of him as a big bundle of excellent attributes because I'm still not entirely convinced that Ryan Gravenberg has a, a definitive position on the pitch. Also, from Bayern Munich's perspective, he's going to be somebody who is moulded into a shape that suits them because I wouldn't describe him as a particularly progressive passer. I think he's more of a carrier. He's a good passer, but he's, he's quite lateral. John's nodding. He's, yeah, well, a good sign. He's skillful. I, I, I suppose one of the risks with a player like this is that he makes news and he appears on Twitter timelines because he occasionally scores really spectacular goals. And so that lends itself to thinking, right, this is an attacking midfielder who is basically a Dutch Philip Coutinho, shoots from everywhere, scores goals, top corner, etc. Not really like that. I just see him as this kind of a skillful orchestrating type who can carry the ball forward and can receive the ball in the penalty box or be a threat in attacking areas. I mean, one of the intriguing aspects of Eric Ten Hag's Ajax, we'll probably see us at Man United, is that there were so many players joining their attacking phases. And so you're never quite sure whether that's a player's trait, whether that would translate to a Bayern Munich situation mm. or whether he would be you know, in a position with, let's not forget, players like Joshua Kimmich and Leon Goretzka who have ticked quite a lot of midfield boxes already. Well, on Goretzka, actually, John, you were saying earlier that you think Goretzka's not had a great season and also pointed out something tactically interesting about Gravenberg at Ajax. Yeah, so I guess the, the thing to start off with is to say that Julian Nagelsmann has tended to play a 4-2-3-1 this season and uh, Gravenberg has played in a 4-2-3-1 all season with Eric Ten Hag tended to play on the left side of that double pivot which is where Leon Gretzka plays so it very much looks like they are looking to strengthen that that position it may not be the case that Gravenberg is going to come in straight away but I think that what you will see is you'll, you'll see him appearing on that left side of a double pivot and the way that Eric Ten Hag sets his team up is just so positionally fluid. If you look at Gravenberch's heat map, he starts out in those in those deeper positions on the left-hand side and you can see his heat map goes all this is not good for audio medium but goes all the way up into the into the left half space and then and then he drifts inside as well. He goes quite central and you can you can do all kinds of things with your defensive line behind you. You can have Daily Blint maybe inverting slightly going inside and covering him in there just allowing him to get into those really dangerous areas on the edge of the D where a lot of those goals that you're talking about Seb have been scored from so really fluid in terms of his positional movements and that would be something that Julian Nagelsmann will like he's been playing in a system that is quite creative so Eric Tanhag likes his players to be creative positionally so think about what they're doing on the field and that's what Julian Nagelsmann likes as well likes to instill his players with principles so ideas that you can apply to what's going on on the field to actually solve problems as they occur so I think that yeah I think that it's going to be it's going to be interesting seeing how Nagelsmann uses Goretzka and Gravenberg you probably rotate the two of them in, in some sense and I think if Gravenberg does well he could actually replace Goretzka off the back of uh, his performances last season it's very good wasn't it Seb it was really good also Goretzka I think that's bottom because Gretzka had some real injury difficulties this season like he had um, um, what seemed a really troubling hip injury which is it because he's got a massive all of a sudden do you remember when he was just a normal man and then he came back as, huge. as a not innocent <laughs> man ripped. just huge and like, he was a normal man he was a normal he, man he, he's he a ripped became man became a not innocent man after that yeah and now he's he's a huge man, but with a bad hip, apparently. Um, oh, that's a shame. He played for Germany over the weekend, so he's he's not unfit and he's he's kind of available, but he's not quite what he was when you think of him as Bayern Pomp. But I think Bayern, part of the Gravenberg answer depends on what Bayern are, because if you think about some of the things that they could lose, Lewandowski is the obvious one, but theoretically they could also lose Nabry. Tolisso is gone. I'm still not convinced Marcel Sabitzer is really good enough to be a difference maker at Bayern Munich. I think he's a good player. I think it's a little bit of an over-promotion. Is this Nagelsmann doing the same thing like Liverpool are doing, like a new cycle of players, or is that from... Yeah, but that's really difficult, isn't it? Because you can have a new cycle of players and you can make it make sense and you can completely understand what's happening. But if you do it before the old players are ready for you to do it, and think about some of the personalities at Bayern Munich, like some of the players like Thomas Müller, they don't respond to change hugely well. And... Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Like, also a young coach, Nagelsmann hasn't won anything until this season, until he was at Bayern Munich. So it's tricky. It's not quite Andre Villas Boas at Chelsea, because obviously uh, Nagelsmann's a better coach and a more successful one now. But yeah, that's not fair on Villas Boas. Actually, you want to travel in Portugal. But How you know what you? I mean? Like, it's, he's a different profile of coach. He has a bit more gravitas to him than Villas Boas ever did. So that's really interesting. But Bayern Munich's a mess. I know they won the Bundesliga. Uh, but Bayern Munich's Bayern Munich's the best. They're going to win that <laughs> everything as long as they, they want they might, to. They might well do. They might well do. But Bayern politically are a huge, huge mess. There's a, there's a big problem there. The kind of the Bundesliga win covers over some of the concerns there. Like if you think about 
what you're losing. Lewandowski's goals, yes, but also your uh, top of the assist charts is Thomas Muller, who's 33 now. Like, there's a lot of kind of tangible output that you're going to have to potentially replace over the next couple of years, and that's really difficult and hard to come into if you're Ryan Gravenberg, young player. My favourite bit about that answer, Seb, is that earlier on you said, yeah, because you live in Germany now, and I don't know if you did it on purpose, but I liked it. I noticed it. If, re- if you rewind, you'll hear him do it. That's, it that's, that's my Rosetta Stone bleeding into the podcast. <laughs> I'd like more, please. Um, there's a couple more chances we should talk about, but what we should do, because the biggest one's coming up, the biggest one of all, that's a little break. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we're back from the break. James Tarkovsky is moving to Everton. Oh... Am I expected to have an opinion on this? Yes. Yeah. Is that not your handwriting on this? Handwriting text? This I is definitely nothing to do with me. Seb. Everything to do with Mr. Seb. James Tarkovsky. I, but I, I, when I wrote it, I kind of, in a way, I sort of, I, I wrote it in a way that implied that John should give it like a good, solid <laughs> alternative opinion on it. Not that I would have to just trot out some, yeah, he's well, good let's in the do air, it. isn't he? Right. So he plays, he used to play for Burnley. He's very good. Has he got England caps? I can't remember. Yeah, he's he decent centre-back, yeah. solid yeah. enough. It's a very, very Everton transfer, isn't it? But what is, what's the reasoning here? Because we think that Yerry Mina is leaving. We think that Michael Keane is probably leaving. So are you changing the profile of your Everton defence by signing James Tarkovsky? What are you... What I think you're just buying a good player. From? I think you're buying a, a leader, a good character, um, someone who knows how to... You don't want to play against Tarkovsky because he's hard. As archaic as that sounds, I think it's really relevant at any level of football. Your defender is... Uh, a nutter or just, just a big strong lad good positionally as well like, he's not a bad player he can play at the no, highest he's level he's a good player but like what? Uh, no he's a good player but what is he in relation to what he'll be surrounded by what does he allow Everton to do that they're not good at at the moment beyond like beyond intangibles and I, I completely agree with you like a, like a really solid character well there's another one like I, I think you know that would be a good signing for somebody but Everton's they've had loads of injury problems right going back but like their centre backs the last game of the season against Arsenal yeah, they had Alex Awobi at right wing back. That's not good. John Joe Kenny's going to Germany. I think I read. Out of Berlin. Out of Berlin. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Um, there's Branthwaite. I think I saw him a little bit and thought he was all got sent off a few times. Well done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Michael Keane, where he's going. Mason Holgate, high potential player who hasn't turned out to be anything other than probably probably a top level championship. Maybe this is really harsh. I'm sorry, Mason. Uh, top level <laughs> championship. Maybe like a lower Premier League sort of. Um, I don't know if Mason Hogan listens to the podcast. I assume not. He'll have better things to do. But uh, So they need to sign a centre-back. So you've got Yerry Mina's obviously maybe not going to be there. Maybe he is. But they need better depth. So I think it's a good signing from... I don't know if there's a release clause in Tarkovsky's contract. He's on, why uh, maybe... It's the end of his contract. Oh, right. Oh, it's free. It's a great signing then. Well, they, they are supposedly, according to The Athletics reporting, they are um, due to pay him over £100,000 a week, which mm. is... A lot of money. But that's that's the money you get when you don't have to go for a transfer fee. Like yeah, so, just absorb nice, sure, it. Sure. He would get maybe seventy grand if it was. Oh, what do I know about that? Anyway, we, uh, we talk about we talk about Bundesliga tax before, but yeah. we're talking about Burnley tax, and that's not to say that Burnley are bad, but that Burnley get their centre backs doing very specific things. And I think there's an argument to be made that Tarkovsky is a decent ball playing centre back, and you haven't seen that as much at Burnley while he's been there. So maybe. you're getting a cheapish you know pedigree centre back who potentially could actually again scale up into playing if you're wanting to play a little bit more of a a build up system I think he would probably be okay I think it's actually it's a very Everton signing but I think it's actually quite a decent one I I can see the reasoning behind it yeah it's a good I think it's a good deal I think that's the way you have to look at it like regardless of what you think of Tarkovsky like you're getting a Decent player, cheapish, and they could be like upside that we've not seen for a few seasons just because of t- team play style. Yeah. Well, uh, last one we've got. 
which I think is actually interesting because Jed Spence is maybe, there's rumours of him going to Spurs or something. They're trying to sign all the wing backs because they want better ones. Uh, this guy was so important to Nottingham Forest and I feel like it's very unfair that Spurs would then rob him of giving them another season because Forest need to keep, well, it's very difficult for them to, I'd imagine for them to stay up next season. I don't know how they're going to invest, what money they've got and how clever they could be with it. Uh, do you think that would be a good move for Spurs? It's a really boring question, isn't it? Uh, I, I do think it's a good move. I, I like it for a couple of reasons. Um, Jez Pence was born in London. Um, he came through at Fulham before he moved into the senior game. That's always a good thing. Like, I, London's not for everybody, particularly young players sometimes. Like, sometimes young players from abroad really struggle with it. It's a big city. It's intimidating. He knows the area. He'll presumably have family and friends there, which is like, it ticks the first box. Also, he's a super player. Like, after the, the playoff final, just doing by your parameters here, an awful lot of people are qualified to play for Spurs. <laughs> yeah, but you know the, the, they're not strong at right wing back. To be fair, are they? <laughs> I wasn't born in London, so I'm not allowed to no, play. No, you're not. You're not. You're banned. No. Um, <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, Spence is a really attacking fullback who turned into a wing back for Nottingham Forest and was just hugely important. I would say their best player last season by a mile. I think he's. Um, I think what's interesting about him is obviously his pace, but he's really skillful. And yeah. I like it when a fullback or wingback in a, in a Conte system isn't afraid to come and field because I think it's a really important aspect of modern wingback players. Like you don't just want a player that sits on the touchline and, and goes back and forward and plays in sort of vertical straight lines. You want someone that can contribute, that can actually, you know, potentially force like a, an inside or wide forward outside, create a little bit of displacement in midfield or in the attacking third. And a lot of this would be, if he does go to Tottenham, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but if he does go there, a lot of it's going to be adjustment because he's known known quantity in the Premier League. A lot of it's also going to be how he assimilates the huge amount of information that comes from Antonio Conte when he joins. Because that's part of it, just being able to process the kind of the instructions that comes with a, that come with a role in his system. But it's very likely it's, it's weird though, isn't it? Because I, I remember watching the the playoff final and all the amateur scouts are out and you know providing kind of yes no um verdicts on whether he's good enough on the basis of like a 90 minute game where you're presumably i can think of nothing more terrifying as a professional footballer than having to play in the playoff final and just thinking i, I think i would just sit in the sense and cry just because of the pressure like it just it seems so the idea of, of judging a player from within a, like a hugely inhibiting context <laughs> seems deeply deeply unfair but he looks a good player it looks a really good player yeah, he is good. I think it's unfair. Got Martin really Ford. good straight line speed, you know. <laughs> really good straight line speed. Now, I like it. I think, so, so my big criticism of Jed Spence would probably be positionally. I think he's a little bit positionally weak, but as you've said, Seb, where better to send Sorry, a raw player who is, you, you know, got all of these really exciting athletic attributes than to play under Antonio Conte, where he will be drilled in how to position yourself on a football pitch. And I think you bring those two together and I think it could be really exciting what, what comes out the other end. Yeah, and also like you've got him inside, you've got him outside Christian Merrow, who at the moment, depending on what they do in the, in the transfer market, is Tottenham's best defender by the best sort of one-on-one -on -one tackler by some distance. And Romero is quite an aggressive guy, like positionally, and so that's that causes a sort of like added layer of complication. But I think that's a, that's a kind of reassuring aspect of this. So I, I like it; it's good. I mean, it's um, it's one of those where like what matters at Spurs I think is probably the profile of player more than the player themselves like what are the players traits and like how can the player serve the the shape elsewhere on the side and like Jed Spence seems to be like a, a pretty good choice for that well it sounds like a match made in heaven do you know what doesn't sound like a match made in heaven is uh, PSG and Maurizio Pochettino all Pochi Jason, um, why do you hate Mauricio Pochettino so much? Let's talk about this because this has I been burning like background issue of Tifo for a really long time. I, I don't hate Mauricio Pochettino. Where better How dare to you? talk about it? Mute Seb. Mute Seb. Apologies to Pochettino if he's listening. Yeah, yeah apologies to all yeah. the footballers listening to this and you at home for listening on the bus just, but a sorry just sorry generally do a nice link here you know if you are Pochettino and you are listening do get in touch let us know yeah you can subscribe to The Athletic <laughs> so anyway Pochettino sacked right well they've parted ways it sounds like at PSG uh, it hasn't worked for him there it's very different managing a team of very hungry ambitious players who are trying to get to the next level than it is to come into a squad full of absolute megastars where well actually this is bringing to a point one of your podcasts John mm. that you did before he became a TIFO. What do you become? You become a TIFO member. doesn't matter. John does a podcast that's very good called A Podcast About Tactics. One of the episodes that he made me listen to <laughs> as part of my research in the video I'm doing. You talk about the tactics at various clubs 
especially big clubs, and how often you don't really need a tactical model if you've got real talent, which is, while Real Madrid, Real Madrid's example, I think is interesting because you had Zidane came in or Ancelotti came in to a team of absolute megastars. There's always going to be some level of tactical input, but I've just started reading, I've been reading Ancelotti's book and I know that, like Cristiano Ronaldo talked about him saying that he wasn't, he's not as in depth tactically at Real as maybe he was at AC Milan, like he was definitely doing stuff there because he didn't need to because the players needed to be, have their freedoms and be believed in to be able to produce things they're doing. But is that what PSG are missing the trick? They don't have a superstar manager who doesn't try and fit a system. Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when people talk about tactics, usually they mean sort of high-end stuff. Your laptop coaches, we've already talked about Julian Nagelsmann and you know Eric Ten Hag, these guys who have all of these really interesting little tweaks that they do on the field that allows them to get an upside. But tactics are just anything that you do to try and get your team winning. To win. Yeah, and I think that the thing with Ancelotti is, is that he recognises that actually when you have that amount of talent on the field, you can get away with just having really basic tactics. So you do, you, you get your team set up in a way that allows those talents that you have to really shine. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's largely what happened. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I'm not an expert in PSG by any stretch of the imagination, but like, which managers have succeeded at PSG? Like, it feels like every manager who's gone there, Tuchel we know, the, we know Tuchel that they're pretty final. Yeah. And you won the league, right? Tuchel, um, yeah. So I think, I'd say he's probably done the best. I think it's interesting on that point, talking about Pochettino, who's very clearly, I think, a system manager. So like, what he yeah. does is he puts in place a team that attacks a certain way, presses in a certain way. Like, so they win. So they're off ball and on ball is very much his design. That's very hard to do with players who know or think they know more than you or who just know how to play the best. So you're not getting the best out of Neymar playing that system. You're not getting the best out of Lionel Messi playing that sort of system. But how do you? Yeah, and it, it's really tough. And I think this is why Pep Guardiola is one of the best managers in the world because he gets elite players playing system football. Um, obviously, Jurgen Klopp does it as well, but I think that they have they have a little bit more of, of uh, the, the sort of talent ID to be able to do the stuff that they do. And like for, for years under Klopp, Liverpool had a midfield that just didn't look elite whilst being elite. I mean, because people consider technical quality to be what we mean when we talk about elite rather than athletic quality, right? But I just basically used that as a way to say that Guardiola is really good, didn't I? So I apologise for... Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that what PSG probably do need is, is a manager like an Ancelotti who is going to be able to manage the, the players that are on the field. But I do think that whilst that has you worked... have him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. While it has worked for a while now, I think we're getting to a point now where at the very elite end of the Champions League. I recognise that Real Madrid have just won the Champions League not having good off-ball stuff. But I do think we're getting to a point now where you can't rely on being not very good out of possession at the very elite level. And I think that's maybe where some of the issues have come down to. And that's what everyone talks about, right, with PSG. It's always like, how do you get these players pressing when they don't want the press? And, you know, it's, it's done for PSG on a number of occasions. Real Madrid still seem to be able to, you know, press badly for most of the game and then just have amazing periods where they just blitz teams and blow them away. But I think that that's not long for this world. I think teams are becoming so smart out of possession that if you can maintain possession against someone like Real Madrid, you're going to keep the ball for most of the game and you're going to generate more attacks. And when you generate more attacks at the at the business end of the Champions League, you're going to create more goals. Uh, I think it was, it was Adam Crafton tweeted that it's almost like they've got their managerial appointments in the wrong Jack, order. Jack Pitbrook. Jack Pitbrook. I want to get that tweet up because that was really good, what you wrote. So Ancelotti was the manager you want now with the superstars. He's the one that can get the absolute best out of them. He's the one they went to first to build. The guy to build a team from the very start is probably Pochettino. <laughs> That would be exactly kind of perfect. Or maybe that Tuchel would be someone that would come after that because that would suit them very well, taking them on the next level. I would put Tuchel on a higher level to Pochettino. We still haven't talked about why you don't like Pochettino. Because uh, it's not, I don't like Pochettino. I don't like how everyone's obsessed and thinks he's amazing. I think he did very well at Spurs, but it would be hard, I'd get myself in a hole here. It'd be hard not to when you have one of the best strikers in the world coming through and you sign Sun Hyung min who's also been one of the best forwards in the world for the last few years. At exactly the same time, you've got Moussa Dembele, who's just phenomenal. And then you also hire... You're trying to butter me up now. You get Alderweire, Alderweire, I love him. At exactly <laughs> the same time, at, at their peak years. So you've got a really strong team. Kyle Walker. So a lot of these he's developed and done really well with. Um, I don't think they were particularly entertaining to watch. I never really enjoyed them. And the, the team he left them with when he eventually departed was awful. It lacked, That wasn't his it, fault, surely. Well, maybe not, but I think he was in charge. So the balance of it was all wrong. There was no width, there was no pace. He should be able to see that all the way through. I watched him play against Newcastle, uh, one of his last games in charge. They were awful. 
And it's like, where's this entertaining Spurs game like team I'm meant to be seeing? And everyone's like, oh, Pochettino goes to Man United. And as soon as he went to PSG, you could see why it wouldn't work. Like Pochettino will get a good team to play well, like he did with Spurs. But what we've seen with PSG is he's not able to do that bit. And I wonder how much that will harm his reputation because the Real Madrid job is basically his before um, mm. he signed he signed a deal with someone else, didn't he? So they didn't take him on. We should go online like, to like, our Spurs correspondent, Seb Well, I, I feel yeah. like one of the problems here is that you overestimate what Spurs were when he inherited them. Like he inherited Tim Sherwood's Tottenham. They were absolutely dreadful. So some of these players... Dembele, the player he inherited was not the player that Dembele turned into. Like talent wise, yeah, sure. But Dembele um, reached a level which was. I take that point. He's a good coach, definitely. Yeah, like Walker as well, Rose. That fullback tandem was his creation. Good players, of course. But prior to Pochettino's arrival, I don't think anybody thought that Carl Walker was heading to Manchester City for 50 million or that Danny Rose would have the option of, I think, going to Man United at some point. Maybe, maybe. Also, Kane, like, I think the way that Kane plays today with that kind of sort of hybrid centre-forward playmaking role. That is Pochettino's design. And so, like, you, the, this is a kind of... There are always two parts to this relationship, the players, but also you, you're right in the sense, like, if you have Pochettino at a certain period of time during a, a particular epoch at a club, he's the perfect manager. If you get him in at the kind of, like, the imperial superstar, can't really be asked with this stage, I know best, shut up, or there'll be somebody else here in a year's time, it's never going to go well. But, like... As a person to lead a group of players, but also to kind of forge a, sorry, it's a cliche and apologies, but an, an identity within a squad, a, a, a kind of a, a sense of what a team is and what they're trying to achieve. That's the kind of body of work, I feel. I mean, I would, I would point out to like, even go against my own point, like had he, it's not his fault his team folded like wet origami against real, is it Real Madrid they got torn apart by? Um, it was, wasn't it? In the Champions well, League. For PSG, yeah. Yeah, because they had that game all sort of wrapped up and then it yeah. just crumbled. And that's a mentality issue throughout the whole club. That comes from the top down to the, man it's the manager. Nothing you can do in the pitch at that time. There's nothing you can do. That's the players who just fell apart there. And that's, I thought he'd address the balance issues. They look like a strong team this season. And that was an example, I think, of him having a good management of it. But then that, that one result <laughs> is enough for me to go like, well, he's not won the Champions League. I mean, that's obviously, I didn't expect that. I don't hate Pochettino. I rate him very highly indeed. So you just stop doing that <laughs> uh, reputation sniping on me. And instead, tell me, please, tell me about higher up things at PSG. Because Luis Campos mm. is joining PSG as a football advisor. Now, I thought that was Leonardo or something. Yeah, so Leonardo's gone, and I suppose that's a little bit of a subplot that uh, PSG have got rid of their head coach and their sporting director in the same summer, which is a little bit of a no-no to me. Also, Campos has a different job title. He is a footballing advisor, which is not a sporting director. And football clubs never do that kind of thing by accident. So you'd imagine that that comes with a slightly different remit. Also, another little detail reported by The Athletic was that apparently this is uh, very much uh, received the Kylian Mbappe stamp of approval in his new role as not quite sure what but more powerful than just center owner of the club yeah right <laughs> and refer you know for good reason because obviously he was one of the main architects of the of that successful generation at monaco some fabulous players came through okay not all of them succeeded afterwards but what a team that was well also, some of them just for context for everyone like ranimo falcao joe martino james yeah. rodriguez fabinho you know him yeah, martial yeah I think maybe the more interesting example is Lille because Lille obviously won the French title a year ago. And if you look at the composition of that team, yes, there's some interesting young players within it, but there's also some unlikely types as well. So you've got your Jonathan Davids, but um, God, I've done the plural thing. I'm so, so sorry. You just said it, Jonathan Davids. <laughs> oh God, I've done the Jonathan Davids, the Barakiel Mazes, the Renato Sanchez's. <laughs> but then you've got you've got sort of odd guys like Yazici in there as well and, and Rinaldo, uh, Rinaldo. Ryan Nildo. The Atletico, the guy that's now at Atletico Madrid. I think, uh, we need Joe Devine the, here. The to Pro Evo of, version of Ronaldo. No, I'm going to let you struggle. Like aggressively <laughs> correct my pronunciation. The you point being... Just me with Pochettino. I'm going to let you just yeah, wallow in wallow this. Wallow in my yeah. mispronunciation. Okay. But the point being is that if you think about different types of team building, one is the kind of throw money at it, get loads of really good players in loads of really good positions. The other is young players or sort of almost situationally valuable players that you can drop in and, and forge a really good side out of it. And I suppose that's, that's I mean, whether it's right or not, I'm not sure, but that's how I look at Lille. So you see a sporting director, footballing advisor, who isn't just a one-trick pony, who has quite a lot of, I suppose, acumen and different ways of, of creating success. So... Uh, it's mostly talent spotting though, isn't it? That's the whole point. Yeah, I suppose so. Which is like, probably, I would say, the most important thing yeah. for any managers 
I mean, man management's obviously key. Your tactics is a small part of it. <laughs> Even though we've built like careers around talking about that so much, it's a small part. <laughs> and I, I think your recruitment and that sort of thing is the most important. And some of the guys he's brought in, he must have a decent amount of contacts, John. This is actually an interesting topic, I think, because Jack Pitbrook did a really interesting piece about a year ago on Luis Campos, which he was being linked I think with Spurs which is why he he did this piece and there's a quote in there from John Williams who's a, who's the sporting director of Amiens he's the, the, the I've never heard composer of, <laughs> yeah. of Star Wars writes <laughs> theme tunes and also Very oversees Amiens in, in Ligue, Ligue 1 but he's got a quote here which is interesting he says he is the best at making decisions on whether or not to sign a player the most difficult thing is to find players that nobody knows. It's easy to find players at Manchester City or Liverpool. It is harder to find players who have come from nowhere. Now, obviously, within the context of Lille, that's that's an interesting quote, but he's gone to that Manchester City or Liverpool now. He's now at PSG. And so in terms of what you're expecting your talent spotter to pick up on, a club like that changes. And I guess I, I thought it'd be interesting to, to have a conversation about like, what difference does it make going from clubs like Monaco and Lille to then PSG in terms of he's going to lose a bit of his edge, right? He's going to lose a yeah. little bit of his upside. It's a yeah, Steve Walsh so. problem, isn't it? Like the Leicester situation. I know Everton are not PSG, but it was that situation where you go from having to deal in scarce resources and, and find players that nobody knew of to going somewhere where, right, we've got loads of money now, so get me a successful football team in the Champions League right now. It's that. I don't think it's, it's even really that difficult. much... That was different from, so I think you look at Liverpool as an example, the way they've built their team. So, I mean, they sort of were a similar thing where they signed Mane and Matip and Wijnaldum when they were Europa League trying to get into Champions League. That's where they were. Uh, and then once they got into the Champions League, they were able to sign, I think the first season was Salah and a couple others. Um, Fabinho. Fabinho, yeah. it was right, it was that season, yeah. Uh, and then the season after that is when they started to really identify the key things. Because mm-hmm. they saw Van Dijk. Van Dijk was clearly one of the best defenders in the world at the time when he was at Southampton. Clearly, I mean, I, honestly, I thought that he was amazing at Celtic. I couldn't believe no one bigger took him than Southampton at the time. He was, he was clearly brilliant. I'm just such a genius. I knew that. That's the money they spent for that. And I'd imagine that PSG is going to be identifying players that have the talent, but half of the talent spotting and choosing the right ones is working out who's got the right mentality for it. Yeah, and game model stuff as well, I think. But yeah, Liverpool are an interesting case because we've just talked about Nunes and, and what impact that's having and that's you know like you can talk all you like about Liverpool having really good talent ID but it's not talent ID that they're good at it's it's all of the stuff about scalability that we've been talking about like will this player fit into our team like everyone knows who Darwin Nunes is even Manchester United are talking about him that means that you know he's fairly well known this isn't this isn't about as you say shopping in smaller markets and finding value this is about finding players who you know you're going to pay a lot for because you're a big club but making sure that you're not wasting those signings so it, it will be different I'm sure he'll be Right so you know, I just thought way. as well is that if you look at the kind of the Galacticos kind of model where so if PSG what are they what, they don't have a particular style of play they, I mean there's no set shape that associates with them there's no set play other than they have amazing players and it's basically a playground for them now Real Madrid had that for a while where they were signing all Figo and Zidane and everything and I think they won a Champions League with it but it's not they I would say they were not as successful as maybe they should have been they won a lot of stuff so I might be getting myself wrong here but Real Madrid's great success with La Decima and going on has been built largely around, it's not very tactical, it's mostly defensive or counter-attacking kind of football. Mm. Like the 4-3-3 that Mourinho played with, um, well, Ozil came at 10 and he played with the right sometimes. That was very much a counter-attack team. Ancelotti won the Champions League by basically waiting until the last five minutes of the half, pushing up, getting a goal, retreating. Waiting until the, the little, just wait for your moments and take them. And the great players in a defensive system tend to always win. That's why Mourinho were so good. Mm. That sort of thing. Well, interesting fact is that Luis Campos is good friends with Jose Mourinho so I was wondering in my in my darker moments whether or not this is sort of presaging a, a move for, for Mourinho to PSG I don't know if anyone thought about that oh, let's think about that during a break looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And we're back. It's not happening. So uh, what else is written <laughs> down on this thing here? We have some excellent things to talk about, like Pepelu. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Tell me about this, please. Who wrote this down? I wrote this one down. That's All right. Because you can see it's got my name written next yes, to it. See? I'm a professional. <laughs> so Pepe, uh, someone called Pepelu at Levante has just signed a 10-year contract to do what? To play for Levante. That's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time, yeah. How old is Pepe Lou? Uh, he's 23. 23. He's a, so he's a, this is why it's interesting. He's a, he is a youth product of the club. And so obviously a lot of this is just sort of performative. This is like, we've got this youth product that we've developed, he plays for us, and we've just given him a 10-year contract. He's a one-club player, you know. But what I thought was interesting about this is that actually if you know your accounting stuff, if you've watched the, oh, the, yes. Derby, the Derby County video that we put out that was excellent yeah. with, with Elias and um, a, a big part of the way that you can sort of spread your profit and loss around is by increasing your contract length and amortizing the 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 payments for for that in your books over a long period so i did wonder like if you were to buy a player like i don't know uh, Declan Rice is a good example because people talk about 150 million. So say you sign Declan Rice for 150 million pounds yeah. and you then have him on a 10-year contract. You can 400 grand away. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah. But, well, this is interesting. We could talk about MLB in a bit, but like in terms of your accounting situation, you can amortise that over 10 years and you're only recording losses of 15 million every every year, right? Which is not that much money. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> Believe me, this 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 works. So I, I wondered whether or not we might see more of this. And the reason why I mentioned MLB is that they do really long contracts in MLB. Um, so Mike Trout, one of the, the the best baseball player ever, is in a really long contract with the Angels. And I believe that they they do these interesting things with these long contracts where they front load them in terms of wages. And so the longer you go through your contract, the the more those wages drop off. So I wondered yeah. whether or not someone is sitting down in a front office somewhere in in the Premier League thinking. Can we try and get people on really long contracts? Well, that might be related as well, because I think a lot of players realise that they can just get a big, long four or five year. If they only time their contracts and their ages right, and they come in certain peak times, then they can get a free move somewhere that they wouldn't otherwise get, mm. like Tarkovsky, <laughs> yeah, big money true. to Everton, that sort of thing. I mean, that's not an example of it. That's you It's know. moving in the opposite direction, I guess, in football, because you want to have that power of the of the yeah. free, free contract. But I wonder whether or not some clubs are thinking, like, if you if we, we can work this in such a way that you are going to be guaranteed decent wages for 10 years. So even if you have, like, a horrific leg break a year into your contract, you're still going to get wages all the way through. And as a bonus to us, we're able to spread the costs of our of our player transfers over a bigger time, uh, span and and in, in so doing sort of make profit and loss um, look a little bit more healthy. Well Seb on that you noticed a bunch of amazing players are out of contract next summer which could have a huge knock-on effect. Yeah we did a, an article on The Athletic about it and it's enormous and it seems to you like I know it sort of uh, attracted a lot of attention this year because of the um, the players available so Pogba and Mbappe and, and what have you but next year it's um I would have Put up the list and I've known this question was coming um, but it's oh, massive sorry. like yeah it's got Sadio Mane I know it just a Liverpool Mane, Firmino, Salah is on there Gnabry is on there Lewandowski was on there we might move earlier but I'm um, not sure I think Arturo Vidal is on there Alexis uh, not Alexis Sanchez um, somebody else from Inter Milan I'm not sure who Stefan de Vrij I think is on there so it's pretty substantial and it seems to represent a new trend and it's interesting I think there's a there's kind of a floating line in football where if you're above it as a player you have a little bit more leverage and you have this kind of facility to say well now I'm probably going to sign two or three years and you know my value is such also that I'm going to run my contract down rather than being sold because the club would rather have it's kind of the Harry Kane situation you'd rather have I think he's the example and he'll probably be leading by a lot of these players are doing this because if he just yeah. not signed that deal, he could have gone somewhere and won stuff. And now yeah. he's going to win nothing. His whole career, you'll win nothing. Or maybe not. But then, nothing! Like, you have a situation also where when you're a player of a certain level of talent, the club would say, all right, well, I'll lose you for free, but then I want yeah. your goals, assists, tackles, whatever, to put me in the Champions League first. It's a very interesting situation. So when Tony Cruz left Bayern Munich, 
like one of the things that Bayern Munich used to be that um, the club there was a sort of unspoken agreement where the club would um, reward players with good contracts and there was a sort of understanding that you didn't run it down like if you wanted to leave you could leave but you left with a year two years to go so the club would could recoup a fee and there was a kind of contentious thing between the club and, and Cruz's agent at the time when you know he eventually left to Real Madrid I think now you've got a situation where the finances elsewhere in the game um, the rewards for qualifying for stuff, for winning stuff, for um, repeated season in the Champions League are so much that you don't really have to fear it to quite the same extent. At least not in the kind of, we need the money to reinvest. Because, well, if you're Man City, if you're Newcastle, if you're PSG, do you? No, not really. So I think the world has opened up a little bit to shorter contracts, possibly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely listening to the last part of that. Uh, well, we've covered a lot of stuff here today, Seb. Yeah, we should I think have. I wanted to, to just talk about Valencia quickly, if I could, if that's yeah, okay. Please yeah, yes, please do. Yes, please. Jose Bordelas has, has left has left Valencia. Uh, he's been dismissed. For those who don't know, uh, Jose Bordelas was the creator of that very successful but hugely disliked Getafe team from a couple of years ago. They didn't win many friends, but it was very good. Um, I think he was actually man- manager of the year in Spain a couple of years ago, 2019 or 2020 or something. He's been dismissed, and this follows a really strange series of events. So we, you might remember the audio leak scandal that came out of Spanish football at the beginning of the year. One of the people ensnared in that was a club president, Anil Murti, who was caught in audio tape saying all kinds of things. Like he, at one point, he accused Valencia owner Peter Lim of being senile. He said very disparaging things about Bordelas' tactics and team selections. Um, and he's left now. Um, so club president's gone, head coach is gone. In has come Rina Gattuso into a club full of chaos where they're expected probably to lose Carlos Soler and maybe Guedes during the summer because they need to, you know, cash in on some of their players, some of their assets before they become free agents in a year's time. Chesa Gaia, free agent in 12 months' time too. And it all seems very harsh because Valencia finished ninth last season and were very close to winning the Copa del Rey as well. They lost to Betis, but they did pretty well. And that is not a good team. Like, I mean, there are good elements to it, but it's not a good side. It's really not particularly fun to watch either. There's not enough goals in it. Gattuso has come in. Obviously, everybody remembers um, the reasons why he didn't get the Tottenham job and why he had that um, issue at Fiorentina relating to his relationship with George Mendes and all kinds of stuff. And it's just like, if you know one thing about Valencia, it's lack of cash and silly things happening. And the right appointment in that context is more chaos, apparently. Valencia also have this thing where because the negativity towards the club's ownership has been um, so pervasive over recent years, they've taken to uh, making club announcements on Twitter with the comments off, <laughs> just, just cut off of its source. And they've, they've kind of rode back on that a little bit. They've speak, spoken about a kind of more open uh, relationship with fans. But when they announced Gattuso, it was with the uh, comments off on Twitter. Weird situation. But it's something to watch because something will happen. Good, bad, ridiculous. Something will happen. But uh, very odd. It's so sad because I grew up with such a, a great Valencia team. Do you remember those, those sides in the 90s? Like Kili Gonzalez and Mendieta and Canizares. Take Mendieta. Yeah, it's, you know, Pablo Amar, like that Benitez team was brilliant. And now it's just very sad to see it. Um, and obviously well, uh, the uh, new Mestalla is uh, still sitting on the skyline, on the city skyline crumbling and seemingly never to be opened ever. Very weird. Very weird, very sad, very exciting. Very sure. all over. Yeah. Um, I am bored now, so <laughs> I want to end the podcast. We can end, yeah. Yeah, so I want to say thanks to everyone for listening or watching, whatever you're doing, whatever you like. Uh, thank you to John McAttack McKenzie. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Thank uh, you for not talking about colonoscopies. No, I don't want to do that. Although it was good that Joe did that last week. If you're having a colonoscopy, listen to last week's podcast and Joe will make you feel better about it. Uh, also, thank you to you, Seb. It's good to have you back. Oh, yes. It's good to be there back. You are. Thank you, JJ Paul. Yeah, that's me. So, yeah, thanks to uh, Don, the producer, and new producer, Jamie, who's sitting and watching. You'll hear more about him at some point. And uh, we're going to go now. Have a lovely time, everyone. Hey, 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.